Welcome to Mind Love, episode 224. Today's episode is all about the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. I think chatter is one of the big problems we face as as a species. And I say that because it sinks us in three areas of our lives that I think most of us care a great deal about. First thing is that chatter makes it really hard for us to think and perform. It can also create friction in our relationships with other people. And it does this in, in a few different ways. One of the things we know about chatter is we like to talk about it with other people. And that can have the unfortunate negative consequence of pushing away people who genuinely love us and and care about us and want to help because there's only so much that they can listen to before we start to bring them down as well. Finally, we know that chatter can also have negative implications for our actual physical health. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If you're new to Mind Love, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And here's your personal reminder to tap that little subscribe button. That way, you'll get reminders to give your mind a little love when new episodes release. And if you love the show, consider leaving a five-star review. These help me entice all the amazing guests that you hear on the show. Today, I'm excited to share a review from Rats of Nim, who says, Melissa Monty is amazing. She's charismatic and curious, interesting and inspiring. Plus, I just love listening to her voice. Each episode is designed to make your life better and you'll enjoy the ride. Highly recommend. Well, thank you, Rats. Is, is Rats your first name? May I call you Rats? I so appreciated this review. It's kind of like being called pretty first thing in the morning. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time. And now let's get to it. Did you know we spend one third to one half of our waking life not living in the present? If you would have told me this a couple years ago, yeah, I'd be a little surprised and a little more mindful, but I wouldn't have been shook or anything. But now that I have a baby, the idea of not being present with him half the time is sort of devastating. And I suspect if we're not careful, it's gonna get worse. We have billions of dollars in tech competing for our attention. But you know what? We can't even blame it all on the tech. Because even without it, we humans have a hard time being present. We have the habit of rumination, thinking about things that can't be changed or that haven't even happened yet. Which is why so many people stay stuck in the past. They're either obsessing over what could have been. Episode 221 is all about that, by the way. Like stalking an ex's new girlfriend on Instagram? you know who you are, (laughs) or replaying the sports failure that lost them a scholarship, or they stay stuck because they talk themselves out of the dreams that keep nagging at them. I should quit my job, but then what will I do? I could start something online like all those podcasters I listen to, but what if I fail? I'm probably going to fail. Who's going to listen to me anyways? I did this for years before I started Mind Love except I would actually start the thing. But when it came down to going big, I'd self-sabotage. I'd lose all my motivation because I'd suddenly start to doubt if any of it would work. So the work that I was doing became harder because I doubted that any of it would be worth my time. And before I knew it, I was back to doing what I had always done. The voices in my head don't believe me. So there must be some truth to that, right? Surely the greats of the world just know that they can do this and that's why they do it right? 
Whether it's taking a business risk or talking to the attractive person across the room or standing up for yourself or making the move that you have always dreamed about. But one of the biggest things that I've learned through my failures and successes is that those negative voices are always going to be there. And not just for me, for everyone. The only difference between successful people and those who just stay where they are is the willingness to do it despite the doubt. In the book I'm going to introduce you to today, there's an example from Mr. Rogers, actually. Yep, everyone's favorite neighbor had his own doubts, even after his successes. This is one of his journal entries. Am I just kidding myself that I'm able to write a script again? Am I really just whistling Dixie? I wonder. If I don't get down to it, I'll never really know. Why don't I trust myself? Really, that's what it's all about. That and not wanting to go through the agony of creation. After all these years, it's just as bad as ever. I wonder if every creative artist goes through the tortures of the dam trying to create. Oh well, the hour cometh and now is when I've got to do it. Get to it, Fred. Get to it. First of all, I, I don't know why that is my Mr. Rogers voice, but that's what it is. And second of all, I think Fred Rogers' journal entry is my new favorite piece of motivation. It's enough to kick me into gear on its own, but it also follows a pretty powerful process. He opens with a question around what he's afraid of. Am I kidding myself that I'm able to write a script again? Am I really just whistling Dixie? Which, by the way, is definitely a phrase I'm adding to my vocab ASAP. <laughs> then he coaches himself with, if I don't get down to it, I'll never really know. Isn't that true for everything? What's worse? You think it's fear of failure, but wouldn't that be better than wondering for the rest of your life? Or always having this nagging feeling? Then he lets his journaling unearth the real problem. Why don't I trust myself? And he vents for a second and then asks another question. I wonder if every creative artist goes through the tortures of the damned trying to create. He tells himself, maybe this problem isn't just about me. Maybe everyone struggles with this. Then decides, oh well, better start. Get to it, Fred. His inner voice is negative and full of doubt, but he brings intention to it. Instead of letting it be an ongoing negative monologue, he opens it up for dialogue and challenges it. Our verbal stream of thought is so active that according to one study, we internally talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute out loud. Let me put this in perspective for you. People speak out loud at an average of 140 words per minute, which means 4,000 words would take a half hour. But inside our heads, we're packing all that into 60 seconds. So the voice in your head is definitely a fast talker. But turns out, the key to beating that inner chatter isn't to stop talking to yourself. That's pretty much impossible. The challenge is to figure out how to do so more effectively. So that's what we're talking about today. The voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. Our guest is Ethan Cross, PhD. He's one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business, He's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's also participated in policy discussion at the White House, and he's the author of Chatter, The Voice in Your Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Three key things we will learn are the costs of negative inner dialogue that go far beyond our ability to focus our attention. 
surprising negative effects of sharing your emotions, and how our inner voice guides the mind and how to be more intentional about it. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Ethan Cross to the show. Thanks for having me, Melissa. It's a delight to be here. I have been going through your book and I am so excited for this episode because I thought I knew a lot of things and there's some results from studies that you've conducted or things that you've researched that kind of blow my mind that aren't what I intuitively thought or what we've been taught. And so to start, give us a little background on you and what led you to your research in, on the chatter inside of our heads. Well, um, I'm a professor at the University of Michigan in the psych department and the business school. And I've been doing research on this idea of chatter, this, which is a term I use to refer to getting stuck in a, a negative thought loop. So chatter about the future or the present, we tend to call that worry. If it's about the past, that's rumination. But the idea behind chatter is you've got some issue you're trying to work through or find a solution to some problem. But you just keep on turning it over in your head over and over and over again. And you don't find a solution. You just feel stuck. And it turns out it's a pretty, pretty common experience. Melissa, I don't know if you've ever experienced that state yourself, but lots of people have at times, uh, myself included. And so I've been studying that for about 20 years, formerly in the lab doing psychology and neuroscience experiments to try to figure out, hey, why does this happen? Why do we sometimes get stuck? And even more importantly, when you do, what does science have to say about the tools that are out there to help us get unstuck? And it turns out there is just a huge array of fascinating things we could do, many of them really simple, not necessarily always intuitive as your initial comments suggested, but there are things we can do to help. So, so that's kind of what I do professionally in terms of how I got interested in this topic. That story goes back about 40 years, not 20, to when I was a little kid and growing up in New York. And I had an unconventional dad who, on the one hand, loved watching baseball, smoking cigarettes and cursing other people off, you know, in the road. I think he had a little bit of road rage. But when he wasn't doing those things, he was reading Eastern philosophy and meditating and talking to me as a three-year-old about what he was learning. And one of the early lessons he gave me, he taught me was, hey, whenever something goes wrong, turn your attention and we're trying to find the solution to your problems. Essentially go inside, tap into that inner voice. And that was a lesson that really served me well growing up. I really did rely on this ability I had to introspect find a solution to my problem. And I, and I didn't really get stuck all that much. And then I got to college and I discovered that this tool that my dad gave me was something that a lot of people benefited from a lot of the time, but it was also something that got people in trouble as well. So we try to use this tool when we're struggling, but it ends up jamming up on us, leading us to experience chatter. And that's how I got to grad, graduate school and what I'm doing today. 
You know, I've always wondered what my life would have been like if I had had some of these teachings when I was younger, but lately I've been thinking about it. I sort of did, not to the depth that I have it now, but I learned mind over matter and I learned this really early to where in sixth grade, I was mind over mattering my asthma. (laughs) I just believed that if I believed that I didn't have it anymore, that it would go away and miraculously it did. Maybe it was a coincidence because to some people it sounds crazy, but thanks mom, you planted a little seed there, a seed that kind of grew into my entire life's purpose. But that brings me to my question, why do we have this inner chatter or this inner voice in the first place? And when is it helpful and when does it backfire? Let me let me kind of break it down for everyone. So we've got this thing called an inner voice, a voice in our head. And we hear that term thrown around lots, you know, in lots of different places and lots of different ways. When scientists like myself use this term inner voice, what we're talking about is our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And it turns out that this capacity is a remarkable one that we possess. It lets us do lots of amazing things. Some of them really simple and we take it for granted, others more complex. What are some of the key functions that your inner voice lets you do at the most basic end of the spectrum? If you wanna keep information active in your head for short periods of, of time, your inner voice helps you do that. So if you go to the grocery store and you're walking down the aisle and you think to yourself, oh, what did I, what was I supposed to get? And then you repeat in your head the items, chocolate, chocolate, and chocolate. I'm projecting here about what I would actually like to eat right now. I was like, are you in my mind? (laughs) It's dinner time over here in the East Coast. That's you using your inner voice. It's part of what we call our working memory system, basic system of the human mind. Let's just keep information active in our heads. If you memorize a phone number, I know people don't memorize phone numbers very much anymore. We have have devices for that. But if you were to repeat a number in your head, 209-0501, if you do that silently, that's using your inner voice. So your inner voice lets you do that. It also lets you simulate and plan, like when you when you go over what you're gonna say before a presentation or a date. Many people report trying to simulate what's gonna happen in an interaction. That's you using your inner voice. We use our inner voice to control ourselves, like when we're working out at the gym and we're like, count down the number of reps we have left until we have freedom in my in my in my mind. Five, four, you can uh, come on, a couple more. Right? That's you using your inner voice. And then finally we use our inner voice to create stories that help us understand who we are. You know, we experience adversity and When that happens, we often get stuck. Why was I rejected? Why didn't I get the job? Why did my kid say this to me? And then we try to work through that experience and our ability to create a narrative that tells us, ah, it happened for this reason. That often gives rise to our our, our sense of, um, you know, our identity, I should say. And so your inner voice helps you help shape your identity in that way as well. So your inner voice does a lot of amazing things for you. The catch is that sometimes we try to activate this inner voice when we're experiencing big emotions and we're not able to use it optimally. It jams up on us rather than allowing us to create a neat and tidy story that explains our experiences perfectly in this world, lets us move on. We start replaying the awfulness of what we're going through over and over again in ways that make us feel worse. And that's what chatter is. And that's the the problem I, I talk about in my book. That's the kind of thing we research. When chatter strikes, what can you do about it? So I know that this chatter can be super distracting. I mean, for me, I've had a lot of my life has been trying to overcome 
the voices in my head or my programming, the habits of thought that I have created. And so my backstory, I dealt with bulimia and addictions. And so a lot of this podcast is about my kind of climb out of those negative mental patterns. And a lot of the times we just think about the fact that it is distracting or it might hold us back from like living our dreams or going forward with something that might be good for us. But what are some of the other costs of negative inner dialogue that go beyond just our ability to focus our attention? Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do. And there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think This Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth. And as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed, because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But what are some of the other costs of negative inner dialogue that go beyond just our ability to focus our attention? You nailed the first one, our attention. So there, basically, I think chatter is one of the big problems we face as, as a species. 
And I say that because it sinks us in three areas of our lives that I think most of us care a great deal about. First thing is that chatter makes it really hard for us to think and perform. And you, you described this very well just a few seconds ago. The real world example I like to give people is just think about a time when you tried reading a few pages in a book or a magazine. You are absolutely confident that you've read the material. You get to the end and you don't remember anything that you've actually read. The reason for that is your mind was somewhere else. It was consumed with the chatter. And we know people only have so much attention. And if all of our attention is consumed by our chatter, that doesn't leave a whole lot over to let us do the things we often want to do. So chatter can make it really hard for us to think and perform. It can also create friction in our relationships with other people. And it does this in in a few different ways. One of the things we know about chatter is that we're often highly motivated to share the gift of our chatter with other people. That is to say, we like to talk about it with other people. And there are lots of reasons why we want to talk about it. We want to feel connected. We want to get help working through it. But one of the problems with chatter is we find someone to talk to and we keep on talking about it over and over and over again. And that can have the unfortunate negative consequence of pushing away people who genuinely love us and and care about us and want to help because there's only so much that they can listen to before we start to bring them down as well. That alienates us from others. It in turn leads us to feel rejected and alone, which is also bad. So it sets off this vicious negative interpersonal dynamic. Finally, we know that chatter can also have negative implications for our actual physical health. Lots of people think that experiencing stress is harmful. That's not exactly true. We know that the ability to experience stress in small doses is a really, really useful response. You wouldn't want to live your life without a stress response system. If you see someone coming up to you on the street who looks a little suspicious, it's really good to have this system that quickly prepares you to approach or avoid that potential threat. What makes stress truly toxic is when your stress response goes up is activated and remains chronically activated over time. That is exactly what chatter does because we experience something stressful in the world or we create it in our minds and then we keep on replaying it over and over and over again. We keep that stress response active. That's how you get stress predicting things like problems of cardiovascular disease, inflammation, and and even certain forms of cancer. So if we zoom out a bit here, what's at stake when we're talking about chatter? Our jobs our recreational habits, right, be performing, our relationships with other people, and our actual physical health. Those are, those are pretty important domains of life, and, uh, and chatter affects them all. It is interesting how talking about that inner voice or that mental chatter can have negative consequences. I think you called it uncontrolled emotional sharing in your book. Where is the line between this, this uncontrolled negative emotional sharing and opening up to actually connect with people on a deeper level? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm so glad you asked because there is an art to to sharing your chatter with others and getting good support. And the science provides us with a bit of a blueprint here for how to do that. And in so doing, the science actually shatters a few myths that are out there about what good social support looks like. A lot of people think that the key to feeling better about our chatter is to find someone to vent our emotions to just let it out express it unload this is a an ancient idea it, it actually goes all the way back i'm going to nerd out on you for can i do it for 30 seconds yeah it- i love nerding out okay, i'm going to do it so aristotle was the first to propose this idea that hey when you're filled with big emotions you just need to 
get it out of your system. And then Freud uh, and his, his mentor, they ran with this idea and they really popularized it. And it's stuck around ever since. Now, there's been a lot of research on the consequences of venting or unadulterated emotional expression. And here's what we've learned. Sharing your emotions with other people, venting your emotions, this can actually be really good for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between two individuals. So it can be good to know that there's like, you know, you and I, Melissa, we, we now we're now buddies. It's good to know that you're there for me to just listen, to hear what I say without judgment, to, to validate me like that feels good to know there's someone in the world who's willing to do that for me. Here's the problem. If all that I do in a conversation with you or someone else is vent about what's going through my head, I feel good about our relationship, but I haven't done anything to actually solve the problem. I'm just reporting to you what I'm feeling and what happened. So I leave that conversation just as upset, sometimes even more upset as when I started. The the formula for getting good support from other people is to find people to talk to who are skilled at doing two things. First, they do take some time to learn about what you're going through to listen. It is important to share and express your feelings to a certain degree. That's a, that's a key term, a certain degree. But at a certain point in the conversation, that person you're talking to, ideally they start working with you to help broaden your perspective, to help you look at that bigger picture. All right, Melissa, you that, so that, that interview didn't go so well, but, but you've had bad interviews, difficult guests in the past. How have you dealt with them before? Or here's what I do in these situations, blah, blah, blah. So you wanna take some time to, to listen and then help broaden the person's perspective. And there's an art to doing this well, right? Depending on the person and what they're going through, some people may need more time just expressing before they're ready to transition into, into having their perspective be broadened. But, but this gives, a, hopefully, to listeners a little bit of a roadmap for how to do this. Yeah, it sounds to me like the person that's venting needs to have an, a willingness for some receptivity to hear possible things to do to be able to zoom out. And that reminds me of actually something you say in your book too, where you talk about that we can think of the mind as a lens and our inner voice as a button that zooms either in or out. So how is it that our mind is helping us either zoom into a problem or zoom out and see the bigger picture? And what can we do to steer it in a more beneficial direction? So when we experience chatter, we tend to zoom in, right? Tunnel vision, the only thing we can focus on is that thing that is looping in our mind, which makes sense, right? If you think about it, you've got a problem, you're going to focus all of your attention on it. The problem is that if we get stuck zoomed in really narrowly on the issue at hand, we often fail to see solutions to our problem because we're not looking at that bigger picture. So what we've learned in lots of research is that when you get stuck focusing on your on your problems in a very narrow way, totally zoomed in, finding some way of stepping back and broadening your perspective, zooming out, so to speak, can be really, really helpful. Here's what's fascinating. There's not just one way to zoom out and think about our think about our experiences more broadly. There are lots and lots and lots of different tools. We call them distancing techniques. I'll just rattle off a few. So one thing you could do is something we call distance self-talk. Try to coach yourself through a situation using your own name and the second person pronoun you. And you wanna do that silently. You don't wanna do that out loud while walking down a city street. The idea here is that we're much better at giving advice to other people than we are giving advice to ourselves, right? It's often really easy for us to coach other people through their problems. And distant self-talk helps us think about ourselves like we were someone else, 
right, from a distance. Most, if you think about like, when do we use names? We usually use names when we're thinking about other people. It's like, Melissa, how are you, second person, feeling right now? Turns out if you use those parts of speech to refer to yourself, so Ethan, what are you doing right now? This gets us to start relating to ourselves like we were someone else from a distance. And it makes it much easier for us to coach ourselves through our problems effectively. So that's one distancing tool that's out. I actually used distancing now that I'm hearing your explanation of it. When I was healing my very severe case of bulimia, which I had for over a decade, it was miraculous because I had been doing a bunch of different things and I was on the journey to healing already. My behaviors had become fewer and further between, but they were still there and it felt like something that was going to be have its hold on me forever. And I started to just talk out loud to myself whenever I had those cravings, because what would happen for me is all of a sudden I would be in a binge cycle. And the moment I ate too much, there was no stopping it. And I would just eat as much as I could and then purge as graphic as that is. Sorry about that. Listeners, if you don't want to hear it, that's just my story. And so I started being like, Melissa, you know what you're going to do. You think you're just going to have this one cookie. That is a trigger food for you. And you're going to have another and you're going to have another. And the moment I started saying it out loud, it's like that emotional hold or, or whatever the drive was inside of me where it just felt like my behaviors were just sequential and couldn't be stopped. It just snapped me out of it. And I was able to stop my behaviors enough to where that was probably the key final habit change or the key final tool that I used that really broke the cycle of bulimia for me. So that really works. That's wonderful to hear. And you know, what I find so fascinating about your story is how similar it is, not the specifics, but the idea that I'm going to guess that you didn't like set out to start talking to yourself out loud using your own name. It just kind of happened. Is that a fair? And and what's so interesting to me is like this has happened to me as well. I, for some reason, I remember um, I actually tell a story in the book where I was really anxious about I had received a, like a really threatening letter in the mail about someone coming to get me and it was not pleasant. And I was really concerned about the welfare of my family and myself and pacing the house with a baseball bat late at night. And at one point I'm like, Ethan, you got to stop this. And I didn't, there was nothing inside me that said, all right, I'm going to start talking to myself using my name. I just did that and it helped. I talk about cases of lots of people doing this from LeBron James to Malala Yousafzai, youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner, Jennifer Lawrence and so forth. Under stress, many people often reflexively start doing this. There's something inside us that that tells us, hey, this might be beneficial. Where I think the science knowing about this has real value is we don't have, now that I know how all of this works, I don't have to wait to just stumble on this tool seemingly randomly in my life when I'm struggling. The moment I begin to detect a little bit of chatter brewing, I instantly turn this tool on, right? And, and so I'm much more deliberate about how I invoke this tool in my life. And I think that makes me a much better um, regulator, someone who's, you know, doesn't experience as much chatter as a result. So that's really the I think the ultimate promise behind, you know, distant self-talks, one of almost close to 30 different tools that, that, that are out there that I talk about, knowing about how these tools work and what they are, it gives people the possibility to be just much more deliberate about how to incorporate them in their lives. And, uh, and I think there's value there. I remember there was a time in my life where I just sort of thought that my internal problems as hard as they were, as much as I was 
ruminating the, in them as much as they were kind of destroying my life because it affected what I was willing to do, how I thought about myself, how I put myself out there. But I kind of dismissed the idea that it was a big deal. I mean, eventually I understood, and that's what led to <laughs> so much of my passion with this podcast is really the power of the mind. But you did a study to find out if the way the brain registers emotional pain is similar to how it processes physical pain. And that is something that was really eye-opening to me as well. Can you elaborate on that? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day. And I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted. Like this is how it's always been. Those type of days used to last months. And now they're pretty few and far between. And they rarely last more than a few hours. But it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than. But if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. the way the brain registers emotional pain is similar to how it processes physical pain. And that is something that was really eye-opening to me as well. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So you, you've probably heard, as many listeners have no doubt, people describing how they feel after being rejected by someone else. They interestingly use the language of physical pain to describe how they feel. Like, I'm hurt. My feelings hurt. I'm in pain. Many people describe that like their stomach doesn't feel good. And so we were interested in trying to figure out, well, when people use the, the, the language of physical pain to describe how they feel when they're rejected, when they're, when they're feeling that social pain, might they actually be referring to painful sensations in their body? So is this just a metaphor or is there some physical component to, to, to experiencing rejection? And so we did this study where we brought people into the lab who had just been dumped by partner within the past six months. They still felt really rejected about it. They were in a, a monogamous relationship. And, and then what we did in the study is we did this in a, in a brain, brain scanning lab. So we brought them in for an fMRI experiment. And during some of the trials on half of the experiment, we had them look at a picture of the person who 
dumped them. And when they looked at that picture, we asked them to think about how they felt when they were dumped, which sounds pretty mean, I know. But the whole <laughs> point here is we're trying to get people to re-experience social pain so we can understand what's happening in the brain. And the, the real world experience we were trying to tap into here was that, that feeling you have where you look at a picture of that person you love who told you they didn't love you. That's a pretty powerful way of, at least in my experience and in our subjects, of reactivating those painful feelings. So we measured their brain activity when they were looking at photos of their exes. And then on another during another part of the study, we hooked up a little device to participants' forearms that that got really hot. It heated up to a really hot temperature. It didn't burn them. I want to be clear. I'm going to say that again. We didn't burn anyone. Um, the, Just the, burning the, people while they look at their exes. What a cruel experiment. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have to be very careful when I talk about this. <laughs> the sensation we elicited, and we were really careful to make sure that this wasn't too hot. It was like picking up a, a really hot cup of Starbucks coffee without the protective sleeve. Like It hurts your hand. And you put it down after a few seconds, but it doesn't leave any lasting marks. So that was the sensation we elicited. And what happened in the studies, we looked at, is there overlap in the brain between the experience of social and physical pain? We found that, in fact, there was. So the findings from that study suggested that when people use these words, like I'm, I'm hurting, I'm in pain to describe how they feel when they're rejected, they may actually be referring to physical uh, painful sensations in their body. I can relate to that so much. And actually, it's interesting that you bring up just breakups and relationships because the word, we've all gone through them. So you just hear of a breakup. It doesn't seem that bad, but this sounds terrible. But I will say for me, I lost my dad. And then I've also gone through some really hard breakups. And there's something about the breakup that felt worse it was a shorter period of pain than losing my dad, but it was a more concentrated period of pain that hit me from so many angles because it's not just a loss. It's also this rejection, these self-worth questions come up. They're living a life then without you, which then you're ruminating about their, the future that was supposed to be yours. And it's just so all-encompassing. And so yeah. we know that these really hard things can rock our world, can create physical pain within our bodies. What is the first step, like in that example, to step out of that to reduce the turmoil that you're going through? Well, you know, just to validate your experience, I mean, you're not alone. Many people describe being rejected as among the most painful kinds of emotional experiences that, that they have for many of the reasons that you articulated so well. It's not fun to be rejected. Many people really fear it quite a bit for very good reason. In terms of what you can do to manage it, there's no single individual tool that we know works equally well for all people dealing with all kinds of rejections. I, I'm a fan of what I call a toolbox approach to managing rejection and lots of other kinds of chatter-provoking experiences. What I mean by a toolbox approach is this. We know that there are close to 30 different tools out there that are helpful, that can help people. Scientists have done a really good job at identifying what these tools are, but what we haven't figured out is why you know, some people benefit from tool a, B, tools A, B, and C, but other people really like tools D, F, and G. And so that's where a process of self-experimentation, I think, comes into play. So when I'm dealing with rejection, I will use distant self-talk. I'll, I'll, all right, Ethan, 
here's what you're going to do. I'll try to coach myself using my own name. I'll do something called temporal distancing, uh, which involves thinking about how am I going to feel about this sometime down the road? Like, how am I going to feel about this rejection six months from now when I'm doing something else? That often makes it clear that what I'm going through, as awful as it is, is temporary, gives me hope, makes me feel better. I will talk to my chatter advisors, people in my life who are really skilled at not just listening, but also advising and helping me work through my own issues. Uh, And I'll go for a walk in nature, which can be useful too. But those five things that I just described, which really, really help me, and I might add are really simple to do. These aren't like hard things to do. They're, They're easy often. Those are very different from the tools that my wife uses when she experiences a bit of chatter. Right, so she doesn't use distant self-talk. Uh, she'll also talk to her chatter advisors, but she's more likely to organize things and perform a ritual, other kinds of chatter fighting tools. So the real challenge that I think we all face is to number one, familiarize ourselves with the tools that are out there. So what are they? And then once you familiarize yourself with them, start doing some self-experimentation. Start trying different tools out. Does this work for you? If so, keep doing it. If not, try something else. Maybe you have one tool that's working really well. What if you add an additional one on top of that? Maybe that really gives you more bang for your buck. That's where that's what scientists are are doing right now. We're we're doing experiments on that in the lab. And while we do that, I think there's um, opportunities for everyone else to do that on their own. That is the exact approach I use to self-development or really anything I'm going through is that same toolbox approach. Because for me, I remember I used to read a book, for example, and it would give these ideas on, say, how to change a habit. And so I would try them and I'm like, this is life-changing. And then it would fall away and I'd be like, am I just not the type of person that can have a lasting change? Like I'm just meant to stay stuck forever? And a big turning point for me was realizing that for me, Tools work at different times, depending on my moods, depending on the day, depending on what else is going on. And so now I have an amplitude of them that I can just pull from. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like it's going to work right now. This doesn't feel like I even want to do it right now. Is there anything else that I can do? And so even... I have a list of things like I want to have movement every day. I want to have some sort of mindfulness every day. And so one day I might use meditation. One day I might use breath work. One day I might use a long walk. And they all do the same sorts of thing for me depending on the mood. And a lot of it is just a a big part of my toolbox is just kind of going through a Rolodex of mindsets and seeing, okay, if I think about it this way, does it feel good? Does it feel helpful? Does it feel empowering? What if I think about it this way? Where I used to be that skeptic where I'm like, I think about it this way, but is that even true? I could kind of knock it this and that way. But instead I just go all in with a new mindset. And you have a whole section in your book about research around the placebo effect and how we often think that it's just a sugar pill or something that we actually take, but it can also be something just within the mind. Can you go into more detail about the placebo effects that the mind can actually give us? Yeah. Well, I, well first, I want to, um, again, applaud you. I mean, I think it's so great. You have you have the Rolodex and of tools. And having the Rolodex is not to be undervalued, right? Because a lot of people don't have, don't know what the tools are. I think just knowing what these tools are and then having that flexibility to cycle through them is so incredibly important. So really glad that you have that. Placebos. I love this work on placebos. Um, the, the chapter title is called Mind Magic. 
And I think of placebos as kind of magical, not in a, we shouldn't believe in them, but just it's the magic of the, of the human mind. Here's what we know about placebos. If I can get you to believe that you're going to feel better, uh, if I can really convince you of that, that outcome will actually come to fruition. We know this because there have been lots and lots of studies in which you give people uh, an inert substance. You give them a sugar pill or you tell them or a bracelet to wear and you say, hey, this is going to make you feel better. Trust me. This makes a lot of people feel better. You know, your depression is going to go away. Your anxiety is going to go away. You're not going to be afraid of heights. And if you actually believe the person telling you that, turns out your depression goes down, your anxiety goes down, and so forth and so on. We even see these kind of placebo effects emerging with physical problems like Parkinson's disease symptoms and symptoms of um, irritable bowel syndrome. Simply believing something often brings that belief to fruition. How does all of this work? Well, the brain's connected to everything going on in your body. And so if you use, to be really crude here in how I'm talking about the brain, the the front part, the frontal cortex, which is involved in, in thinking about, in our expectations about how things should be, if your brain expects something to happen, it can begin to bring that outcome to fruition by communicating with other parts of your brain that that control how you feel, for example. And so the take home here is that we shouldn't underestimate the power of belief. It can really make a difference, especially for things like chatter. So if my kids come to me and they're really worried or ruminating about something, I give them the belief and like, no, 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 you're gonna feel better. I know this because I've seen it before. And I'm not lying, I'm being true. Um, I, you know, I know people will feel better from their chatter, but once they believe that, it has some benefit. So that's the placebo effect. It's interesting because when I was pregnant, the first few months of my pregnancy, I went to a normal OBGYN in LA. And then the second part, I went to a midwife. And just their approach was so wildly different. I actually really liked my OBGYN more than I thought I would, uh, but she still, so much about it is, okay, we got to do this test to make sure that you're not positive for this thing that you have a one in 500,000 chance for. And, and you're just stressing, or I was just stressing when I was going into the appointments, I would have anxiety before every single ultrasound. And then I go to a midwife and there's less ultrasounds. And so much of it is about making you feel in a certain way so that you your body is in a state to carry through in the healthiest way possible. And it just gives me an extra grievance. Like, for example, when the leaders of the country put out an announcement that there's going to be a winter of severe illness and death for a certain group of people. And I'm like, do you know what you're doing? Do you know how many people are going to take this to heart and manifest this in their bodies or create this through that effect? And so say we are getting messages from either people in our lives or doctors or leaders of the free world. How do we control those stressful thoughts or combat them inside to make sure that we're not inadvertently being affected by somebody else's ideas that create that placebo effect inside of us. So what you're describing is something that we call the nocebo effect, which is when our expectations are influenced in a way that causes harm rather than benefit. 
And I think you're right that other people are constantly influencing our expectations, not always in positive directions. And so there are a couple of ways to handle that. Uh, A very blunt tool would be to cut that information off at the pass. So divert your attention elsewhere. So you're not hearing that kind of messaging. A lot of people do this when they get like information overload with the news and are feeling really negative. They just stop reading the news. It's of course not always possible though to completely filter out the stuff that is pushing our expectations in a negative direction. And when you can't filter it out, We've got another really powerful tool to manage a situation, which is we can reframe how we think about things. So just because someone says something doesn't mean we have to actually believe them. We can reinterpret the situation. I I mean, I did this throughout COVID, right? Depending on the lens that you see the world, I mean, the world could be really bleak with COVID or there could be signs of hope along the way. I mean, if if, if we look back at the last two years, very early on, we started making progress against this disorder. I mean, it was really tough, no question about it. But, you know, how we frame the situation, the messages we got from our, our leaders, I think, could make a big difference in how people subsequently feel. So, so that's my answer to the question, which is, if you find yourself having your expectations manipulated in a way that you don't like, reframe what information is coming in more, more effectively. What if we're listening to this, someone's listening to this, and somebody just keeps popping into their mind about that person that they know just ruminates so much that lets that chatter overtake them? What are some tools for providing support to others for their chatter? Well, step one is the the principles we talked about before. So find people to talk to who are skilled at taking some time to listen, but then also helping you broaden your perspective. That information isn't just useful to ourselves when we're experiencing chatter need help. It also, on the flip side, provides everyone who's listening with a playbook for what to do when someone comes to them for help, right? Because when a friend or a loved one comes to me, I'll, I, I just use these principles to guide me. So if my wife comes to me, she's having some chatter, I'll, I'll listen earnestly, empathically. And then at a certain point in the conversation, I'll say, hey, totally get it. Hey, I have an idea. Can I, can I offer you my perspective? And sometimes she'll say, no, I'm not done. Just keep listening. And then I keep listening and I try again a little bit later. Other times I'll pose that question to her and she's like, please tell me what you think. So I, I don't go into any conversations with people blind and you know just trying to stumble through. I actually know what to do when someone comes to me asking for some chatter support. So that's one thing you can do. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is The principles I just described, they're really useful when someone actually asks for your help. But there are, of course, lots of instances where you see someone struggling and they don't ask you for help. And then the question is, well, what do you do? Do you let them just suffer in silence or do you volunteer support? There's been a lot of research on this. And what we know is that when you volunteer support and it's not asked for, it can often blow up in your face because what that does is it threatens the other person. Right? The other person often interprets that offer of help as what? You don't think I know what I'm doing? You don't think I can deal with my own shit? And you know, parents see this happening with kids or experience this happening quite a bit. I've experienced this with my own kids. My daughter's like ruminating about boys and something like, hey, let me tell you what to do here. Like, I'm a boy. I used to be there. Here's the situation. And like, like, Dad, you don't know. <laughs> it's usually, it's more like, Mom, get away. <laughs> like, rolling her eyes and like, oh, yeah. 
So again, I, I've threatened my daughter's sense of agency. Like she is capable of handling her own business. Um, so I don't, I try not to do that. The good news is though, that there are still ways you can help when you're not asked for help explicitly. We call this providing support invisibly. So getting people the support they need, but without shining a spotlight on the fact that you're doing it. This can take many different forms, some really simple. Let's say my wife is is dealing with some chatter. She's really stressed out. I can do things to just ease the burden on her. Like if it's her turn to, to do dinner and get the dry cleaning, I can just take care of those chores. Like I'm not doing them and then telling her, hey, by the way, I took care of dinner tonight and I picked up uh, the dry cleaning. So I just want you to know that. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't, I'm not doing this for credit. I'm just doing it to make her life a little bit easier. If someone in my lab is really struggling with their writing skills, rather than pulling them aside, hey, look, you really need to get better. This is not good and here's why. I might have a, a, a team meeting in which we all talk about uh, the the issues we all struggle with and solutions that we've encountered and resources. So I'm getting this person info they need, but I'm not singling them out. And and finally, with friends and loved ones, you could do something that we call providing affectionate touch, um, which is a really powerful tool for managing chatter, right? Like the affectionate embrace, a hug, a pat on the shoulder. Uh, we know that this can be a really useful tool for managing chatter as well. The only caveat there is for it to be helpful, it has to be wanted. So you wouldn't want to haphazardly, you know, be going around work and hugging people and stuff. I would not endorse that. <laughs> I can relate to, you know, as immature as it sounds, those losing a sense of agency when somebody gives me unsolicited advice. There's also a higher self part of me that I'm kind of able to scoot back in and be like, okay, can I interpret this in a different way? It's especially poignant when it comes to my mother for some reason. It's like it triggers this inner child thing with me. And so what are some of the tools that you advise for receiving chatter support? Because we all have that inner resistance, like don't tell me what to do type thing. But sometimes it's good for us to hear that advice and not frame it in this negative way like this person is trying to control our lives. So how do we become more receptive to that? Well, I think a recognizing the value that other people can have for us when it comes to chatter is step one. Like other people are often in a prime position to help us because they have distance from our problems. They could be more objective. Like think about a time when a friend or a loved one came to you, they were worried to no end about something. Chatter, 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 can't think straight. They present their dilemma to you and it's really easy for you to advise them along. Like most people can think of that kind of circumstance. So just recognize how valuable another person can be. And then once you realize that, then it's a matter of thinking about who you can actually turn to to get good chatter support. Like I've got a very large social network, a large family, but very few people that I go to for chatter support. Like there are a lot of people in my life who I love, they love me. I never talk to them about my chatter because I know that they don't know how to help. They think that helping means just getting me to talk about what happened to me and telling me I love you no matter what. And that feels good, no question about it. But but I actually need, okay, that's great, but I need to work through this problem because it's going to happen again tomorrow and I need some solutions. And so I've thought carefully about like who in my life is a good chatter advisor. And there were like three people I turned to. 
when it comes to personal personal problems, personal chatter, relationship stuff, things like that, parenting. And then maybe four or five when it comes to work-related chatter. And that's a resource that I know is powerful and I will activate it when I need it. That reminds me of, I was in a very intensive public speaking program and there was a whole section on how to ask for feedback. And it kind of reminds me of this because so many people will just ask for feedback and then they get the feedback and it's all over the place. Or it's like, okay, what do you think of my speech I just gave you? And they're like, well, I think you should change this part. And you're like, I was only asking about my delivery or whatever. So instead you go in and you're like, now don't talk about any of the content. I just want to know, am I smiling enough? Do I say um too much? Whatever. And and that can be helpful. And I've sort of used that in my personal life when I ask for feedback. But that does require sitting with myself and getting clarity on what I even want. Because some of the times I realize after sitting in silence for a little bit is that all I want to do is vent. So can I do that in a better way without bringing somebody somebody down with me, I suppose. So that's super interesting. But there's one last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up today, because I just found it really valuable. You talk about how awe has an impact in our emotional lives. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable. We often experience this emotion uh, when we're out in nature, looking at an amazing sunset or like a mountain range or the fall foliage in New England, if, if you've ever been around there. But we can also experience this emotion in response to other kinds of um, things like human-made creations, like skyscrapers. I experience all when I look up in New York City at the sky, like how the hell do we figure out how to do that? So when we experience this emotion of awe, it leads to what scientists call a shrinking of the self. We, f- we ourselves feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so does our chatter. So experiencing this emotion of awe, it's a powerful way of broadening our perspective that that can help us with our chatter. And so that's, that's another, I think, um, really useful tool. And it's a tool that interestingly we find in the world around us. So it's what I call an environmental tool. It's a way of helping us manage our chatter from the outside in, from just interacting with our environments in particular ways, putting us in a position to experience that emotion. Well, thank you so much for all of the research that went into this. Like I said, it was just jam-packed with information, elaborations on things that I already knew, but then also some things that just were completely the opposite of what I had believed before or what I had learned. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your amazing book, Chatter, where's the best place for them to connect with you? Uh, they can go to my website, www.ethancrosswithak.com, and there's um, info about me, the book, my lab, uh, and lots of other fun stuff. All the links to this episode are at mindlove.com slash 224. Your challenge for this week is to check your chatter. What I did when I started to harness my inner chatter, this was actually a limiting beliefs exercise, but I think it's really powerful when we start to notice that we have the same story going on and on in our head that may be holding us back. And a lot of times it comes from when you have that big dream or that nagging feeling that you should do something. I had this for a while before I quit drinking alcohol. What is that thing for you? Notice the thoughts in your mind around it. Notice what's keeping you where you are. 
If you have a nagging feeling or a nagging thing, anything that keeps coming at you, it's likely your intuition. You can tell if it's your intuition if it's based in love, something that's a positive outcome for you. And then usually what happens is our programming comes in and tells us all these reasons why it's not that positive of an outcome or it's not that bad to stay where we are. So when you notice that voice popping up to tell you to stay where you are, to not do the thing, to not take the risk, to not change the habit, challenge the voice. Just bring more intention to it. Ask questions and then try to answer them honestly. And if you're anything like me, sometimes when you answer it honestly, you feel a little fear bubble up because it's like, do I really want to give up all of those happy hours on the patios? Do I really not want to be at the top of a mountaintop having a glass of wine with my husband? All of those things are one moment in time that is holding me back from a whole pattern change. And that's just my example. I had the same things come up when I was thinking about starting Mind Love or really a business at all. I kept talking myself out of my dreams, saying that it would be easier just staying where I was instead of bringing intention to all of what could be, what still could be if I just took action. But it's hard to take action if your thoughts aren't leading you toward that action and instead holding you back. So whatever that inner chatter is, it doesn't have to be a big risk or a big habit change. It could just be the fact that you have negative voices running rampant in your mind. Like, oh, I'm so ugly. I hate my body. No one's going to love me. Everything around me sucks. I hate the city that I live in. Challenge those and not in the way where you're like, well, why is this all so bad? Or why am I ugly? And pointing out all the flaws that you can find, but the opposite. Is that even really true? Is the thing that you're telling yourself absolutely true? Can you know without a shadow of a doubt that it's true? And if not, can I find evidence for the opposite? Can I find evidence for the fact that I'm amazing and beautiful and successful already as I am? Can I find evidence for the fact that I can do hard things? Can I find evidence for the fact that everything is perfect just as it is, instead of always spotting all the things wrong with the world? Because I know you can challenge that and argue with yourself forever, but what good is that doing you? just pointing out everything bad that you can't change or, and be totally brutally honest here, or is your life more fulfilling when you choose to make a habit of seeing the good all around you and within yourself? Try it this week and see how it feels and let me know how it goes. Leave a comment right on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 224 or reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you'd like to support Mind Love, the best way is by joining Mind Love Premium. You get a backlog of all the exclusive episodes, ad-free listening, meditations, and other bonuses. I'm also working on some exciting things for Premium, so get excited for that, but I'm not sharing quite yet. You can also support any of my amazing sponsors, and you can find a list of all of them at mindlove.com slash sponsors. Or the free way to support the show is by sharing directly with a friend or on social media or leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. 
Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.